everyone. Welcome back. Brand new episode of What's Good. Greg Meskel here with you and a great guest here today, Gary Bloom joining us. Gary and I worked together a few years ago and he's a, a longtime well-known veteran commentator, but is now also becoming very well-known in the area of psychotherapy. Gary, great to have you here. Thanks for inviting me onto your show. Gary, your journey is so interesting, and I, I feel like in the midst of this pandemic, and hopefully we're making our way out of it, but uh, the idea of mental health and, and seeking out therapy is more popular than ever. Just tell me, what's the, what's the last 12 to 16, 18 months been like for you and something you've been focusing on for many years? Well, you won't be surprised to learn, Greg, that the last 18 months have been very, very busy, the, the busiest time I can ever remember working as a psychotherapist. Um, that's because we are, we've entered a, um, a period of time uh, of great unknown right across the world. And people just don't deal with uncertainty as well. You know, we have a great joke here that the greatest uh, invention on the London Underground, the Metro, is not the rolling stock. It's in fact the overhead hanging boards which tell you how long it is till your next train's arriving. Because people want to know that stuff and they don't mind waiting for 20 minutes if they know they have to wait 20 minutes. So the uncertainty has been really, really hard. People who are, have been working from home are now anxious about going back into home. People have lost their jobs. People have lost their loved ones. People have become uh, depressed about what is the meaning of life because all the sort of things that give our life any meaning, the what I would call the mini holidays, the trips to see your mum and dad, trips to see the kids, see that big sports event, all those have gone. And therefore the what is all this all about questions have come up for a lot of people in the last 12 months. Yeah, I think people often say that if you're feeling unsteady in a certain way, and it could be mentally, structurally within a team whatever it might be when there's a crisis that will kind of magnify the issues you you may have already had uh you you've been dealing with kind of athlete identity and that sort of thing for many years it sounds like the last 18 months really turned it up a notch or two for people that were maybe already having some of those problems and then brought them out in others that maybe didn't even know they were there yeah so maybe <clears throat> A good 30% of people I've seen in the last year, I'd have never seen had it not been for the pandemic. And yet the people who I would have seen have got a lot worse. But you take this into the, into the sports arena, into the sports world, you have a different set of circumstances. And here in the UK, you know, our soccer grounds are empty. There's no fans. There haven't been any fans for the last 12 months. That has made a big psychological impact on, on the players who are playing in front of empty stadium. Most of them have never played in those circumstances before. Um, it's become a really difficult dilemma for sports stars, especially the ones who I call the entertainers, people who play sport because they want to they score goals, they want to perform in front of a large audience. What happens when that audience isn't there? What happens then? Why, why are they doing it? So for a lot of our sports stars, the last 12 months has not been great. The premise of athlete identity, it's, it's something I think I've talked about with every guest over the last year, and you've just hit on it. Even in a non-pandemic time, and I think a lot of athletes go through this when they're injured, right? They're, they're so tied to their identity. All, all they are is 
that great soccer player, that great basketball player. Uh, and then when it's taken away from them, and it was something you hit on earlier, right? At least with an injury, there's a sense of, okay, if I rehab, if I go through these proper things, I can get back to where I was. This has provided so much uncertainty. And in reading a lot of what's been written about your work, it, it doesn't matter if you're making a lot of money, if you're the best player on the team, this is, it, it cuts across every type of person, yes? Yeah, it does. It's interesting. People say, oh, well, imagine working with a, uh, an English Premier League star is very different from working with a player who's maybe further down the leagues and who's maybe only earning a small percentage of what an English Premier League player is earning. Um, it doesn't make any difference, to be honest. The issues are exactly the same. And, you know, in some respects, even harder for the Premier League player because they have the whole issue of mistrust then added into the, into the uh, mixing bowl of their lives because if they're earning vast sums of money Greg um, they then have to think at the same time are these people who are entering my life just after me because of my earning capacity whereas players further down the league that isn't really a big issue if they're not known so even your big NBA stars will have all that sort of anxiety going on for them or the NFL stars but then the people playing the collegiate level I think, the, I think those issues are just the same. All the things about deselection. Deselection happens if you're you know, an amateur or you're a top professional. Injuries, transitioning, that means going in or out of the sport. What happens when you get dumped out of the sport when you're a, a teenager and you just realise you're not good enough, like happened to me when I was, when I was playing soccer when I was a kid. Then, then transitioning when you're in your... Uh, mid-30s when you realize you just can't run as fast as those younger guys anymore. So all these things are are absolutely normal. In the UK and I think in the US there are very few people, if anybody, doing the work I'm doing. And my goodness, now more than ever is a time when we should be looking at supporting our sports stars and trying to help them because the facilities do not is, exist inside many of our clubs, many of our sporting teams. And I'm the first ever sports psychotherapist to work in professional soccer in the, in the UK. There are sports psychologists knocking around, have been, you know, it's a, it's a profession brought from the US, but very few sports psychotherapists. And the difference is that sports psychology is a science. We can measure it. We're looking for data. We're looking for results. Psychotherapy is about relationships. How do you measure a relationship? How much do you love your partner? How much do you love your mom and dad? They're ridiculous questions. So the quality, this is the, the buzz phrase that I use, the quality of any organization, any organization, sports clubs, corporate, whatever, is only ever as good as the quality of the relationships inside it. It's as simple as that. Yeah, that's it. Very well said, and and to your point, simple but so true. And you hit on it, uh, being being uh, the only one working with a team, working with Oxford United. You also have a new book, Keeping Your Head in the Game. Gary also hosts a show on the Sporting Couch, so you're putting a lot of uh, a lot of work and helping to share this message for people that maybe aren't aware with what you're doing lately. I think many know you right for your many years in commentary, calling high level. Uh, football, as they'd say in the UK, soccer, as we'd say here, matches and Olympics and all these other things, inter international events. When you think back to your days as just a commentator before you get into this kind of 
psychotherapy, where, where did mental health live in the discussion? How often did that come up and how did you handle it when calling a match? It never came up. I was never aware of it. It's the great taboo. It's the, it's the thing that nobody wants to admit, Greg, nobody in, in the broadcasting world where, which I inhabited and you inhabit as well. And in the sports world, nobody's going to say to their coach, you know what coach, I'm just not mentally prepared for the weekend uh, because they fear deselection. Because once you say that to a coach, what's a coach going to do? They not many, very, very few coaches would say, don't worry about it. We'll bring a therapist in, we'll have a decent chat, and we will we'll sort this out. What the, what's the coach going to say? You're out the team, you're benched. So it is a great taboo, a great, um, a great unmentionable in the sporting world. And my job, I think, if I have a job here, is to try and normalize, and that's the word I'd like to stress, normalize these everyday conversations, not just in our sports clubs, but in our offices, in our bars, in our restaurants, right across the board. If you are having trouble in any form or any shape or form in your working environment, you have to talk to somebody. And, and I, if you're not talking to somebody, you're not doing yourself or them a favor. Because if you had a physical injury, if you had a bad back or your creaking knee or whatever, or a headache, you'd have no hesitation at all going to your doctor. But when people have mental health issues, they find it really, really hard to reach out for help because actually that's the nature of mental health issues. We want to crawl into our beds. We call them having duvet days. and People don't want to talk about it. The best thing we can do is talk to somebody. And, and you hit on it earlier, but in this world of professional sports entertainers, there's also the outside thought that you're making all this money, you have all this adulation. What what could you possibly be sad about or or feeling off about or have some questions about? And uh, in the in the U.S., it often comes up and, and growing up in the Northeast, uh, athletes that go to New York City sports teams, if they can't hack it there or they can't make it, there's often a feeling that they just can't handle the pressure. They have to go somewhere else where there's less scrutiny. And I think back on it now and I wonder, well, well, in how many of those instances was somebody just maybe in need of a talk with someone else or didn't have uh, you know, the right people in their life to help their mental health? When you think back on your career of calling matches, I mean, I'm sure there must be moments that come to mind where you think, wow, did anyone ever ask that, that man or woman how they were doing mentally? And did that correlate to to why they missed the big goal or didn't perform in the big match? Yeah, the, the, the example I often come up with is a, is a very famous footballer here um, for Arsenal and Man United called Alexi Sanchez as a Chilean international. He came across to play in the Premier League and, and absolutely bombed at Man United. Um, but nobody ever took the time to help him understand what he, or ask him what he needed. He came across here without his family, he didn't speak the language. He found it hard to settle in the northwest of England. Uh, and eventually his career, after being traded for 55 million pounds, so what's that, about uh, 70 million dollars? And nobody, and he, he, was, he was traded on very, very quickly. What a colossal waste of money by Manchester United. And nobody actually sat down with him and said, what do you need? Or sat down with him and helped him through his tough patch because he doesn't become a bad footballer overnight. Doesn't become a bad soccer player overnight. And just like you, 
your teams in, in, in the Northwest, in New York State, people don't become bad NFL players or NBA players or bad ice hockey players overnight. What they need is support. And you have to reach out to those people and say, what is it you need? And sometimes it'll just be, you know, company or, or uh, they're going through a tough time in their marriage or they're not seeing their kids or not seeing their parents or, or something's gone wrong. Uh, my, my buzz phrase here in, in, in my book that I've written, Keeping Your Head in the Game, is happier players play better. And all of us, whatever job we do, if we're happier, we're going to do it better. And you had this premise, too, uh, about the idea that how, how much better could you be if you didn't always have to prove you were great every time you did something? And I, I thought that was so interesting because I think as a fan, right, I, I got into sports as a fan, I look at the greats and, and think a lot of that is just a combo of natural ability and just, you know, always being at a 10 and kind of working hard, um, but, but never thinking about the greats of what's it like for them mentally to always have to think they have to prove they're that good. Well, that's a problem that goes right across society, Greg. It's not just about it's our sports stars. Uh, when I work, work in corporate land, I have CEOs, COOs, what we call the C-suite people, who all you know, one of their biggest problems is they have to try and reach this impossible level and they have to hit perfect tens every day. But the truth is, we can't do that. You know, I probably would have been, you know, now in the UK, it's what, 20 past six in the evening. I'd have been pretty probably a bit sharper even in this interview with you at nine o'clock in the morning because that's just the way my body works. And I've had a long day in, in, the, in the therapy chair and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit uh, tired. The question is, it's not better or worse. It's what's the best version of myself I can be right now? And that has to be good enough. And I know that when I do whatever I do, I can walk away from that situation and say, okay, maybe I got dragged out of my bed at 11 o'clock at night. I was the best version of myself at that moment. And that's all we can be. And we can't mark ourselves out of 10. That's sports psychology. That is psychology, giving ourselves marks. What about the relationship we have with ourselves where we can say to ourselves, okay, I might not have been great at doing that on Monday, but I'll try and be a bit better on Tuesday. It's about the relationship with ourselves and accepting we are, we're human, we make mistakes, and mistakes are fantastic because they give us an opportunity to grow and learn by those mistakes rather than we punish ourselves for making them. We've hit on the stigma around mental health and, and how it's, it's totally acceptable to talk about an injury, but mental health not so much. You work with a team. It's it's the only one that we know of, right? As far as where you're based, what what sort of important ledge did that team climb out on to have you work with them and have it be known publicly? And how much can that potentially trigger other teams to bring on people like you? Well, that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question. To be honest, Greg, the honest answer is I don't know. I can only lead. And there's a there's a theory that goes like this: that if you want to alter somebody else's behavior you can do it one of two ways you can manipulate that with money or threats so to give gifts to to do better i'll give you more money if you do something or i'll be punitive and take something away that's called manipulative but the other way that we we change other people's human behaviors to inspire by our own behavior 
And I hope that in my way that I work with my sports team, um, it inspires other people to say, well, if he can do it, I can do it. If he can write a book, I can write a book. If he can have a radio show about this, I can have a radio show. So we inspire other people by our good behavior and our, not good behaviors, maybe the wrong phrase, by the way we carry ourselves, by our ethics, by our transparency, about our authenticity. And hopefully carrying that inside a football club creates relationships based on those things. I can't be all over my football club. I can't be in every dressing room and every nook and cranny of the, the club of 365 days a year. What I can do is inspire other people to act with kindness and, and generosity and empathy to each other. And in my opinion, that brings success. And in actual fact, it has brought success on the pitch. And, and do you get a sense there's some movement? Do you, do you get a sense other, other teams are looking to eventually add a position like yours? No, if I'm honest, I don't see that at the moment. And you think about what's happened in the last fortnight with the, uh, with the threat of the European mm -hmm. Super League. Maybe it's a good thing that the big six are still not looking in that direction because had I worked for the big six um, in my capacity as a, as, as a sports psychotherapist, I'd have probably been forced to resign um, on ethical grounds because, you know, there are certain things that just aren't right. Um, and I would have found it very, very hard to work with those clubs. And I'm proud to say that, you know, I want, I, if I'm going to work with a football club, I want to work with a football club who have some ethical values in what they do, or a sports club, even in the States, <clears throat> I'd, rather, I'd rather work with a sports club who have ethical values. Somebody once said to me, chase the personnel at that club, don't chase the badge. Mm -hmm. what, what's the ideal evolution of this in your mind in five, 10 years? Is it and obviously in five years, it'd probably be a reach for every club to have some sort of position, but how would you gauge a feeling of, of real impact across the sports landscape in the next five or 10 years? Well, my, my belief is this is coming. I think I'm the first through the door, but I won't be the last. Um, I think the big change that's gonna happen in all our sports clubs on either side of the, of the pond is that you will have a lot, more, a lot more people like me looking after player care so that each highly paid individual, be it a basketball player, be it uh, an NFL player, be it a hockey player, will have a group of people, a team of people around them to make sure they reach their potential. Otherwise, you're wasting your money, especially given the huge salaries involved. Why wouldn't you have a small team of people around that person to make sure that they were comfortable and knew what was going on? So I see this as a huge industry uh, a huge game changer, which has been evolving over the last two to five years, but is really beginning to, to pick up pace now. So I would see it that if you have, say, a multi-million pound NFL player, multi-million dollar NFL player, rather, excuse me, he would have a small team around him. Um, and one of those people would have some sort of psychological uh, training to help him or her be as successful as they would wish to be. And and I totally agree with you. And I think in the US, you see it more and more where people are uh, elite athletes, especially getting more and more comfortable talking about their mental health and about seeking out help and assistance. Um, and, and so it only seems like it's going to keep trending that way. I love to ask everybody kind of a comparison, especially when they've done multiple jobs, a kind of comparison of of success, feeling like you did the job you were supposed to do. So in your case, 
as a commentator, right, you there's a game-winning goal and you just hit all the right notes, right? Player identification, you've got the spot, you've got the great line after the title is won. How does that sort of feeling compare versus you have a session with a client and then they're able to go out and and be a better version of themselves thanks to your assistance? Well, I, I, I think I probably get more buzz out of um, the psychotherapy side than the sports commentary side because what I'm doing as a sports psychotherapist, nobody else really is doing that work to that degree. Whereas some great commentators, including yourself, Greg, who can call games very, very well and use the same line, not the same lines, but come up with their own stuff. But when you've been working with a player whose confidence is rock bottom and has been told he has no further part to play in the football club or the sports team, and he's fallen out with the coach and all that, and you build up his confidence and you work with him every week and you talk about things that are really bothering him on his mind and then he comes on and scores a winning goal and that feels good. Pleased for him really, it's not just for me, it's not about my journey, the fact I've helped him unlock his personal stuff, which has allowed him to do that. So that's really nice. Or to stand, or to stand in a dressing room or with, with people who've just won a huge, huge, soccer game or a, a rugby game to stand with those people and they they hug you and you know they know what uh time and effort you put into helping them feels really good it's it's, it's probably the difference between um a long career as a sports commentator having the occasional highs maybe once a season whereas the highs working as a sports psychotherapist they are very very high when they come very high we'd be remiss in a conversation about mental health without offering some more tangible guidance to folks that might be listening in case they're going through a tough time. And I thought it'd be great for, for you to expand a bit on kind of your rule of three when someone should seek out treatment from a doctor or, or a therapist, whoever it might be. Yeah, this is, this is in no textbook. This is just my own, uh, my own uh, way of thinking about it. But look, if you are, if you're not feeling yourself, and what I mean by that, are you feeling a bit anxious or depressed? Um, or you're, you're maybe you're, you're addicted, there's an addictive behavior, you're drinking or you're gambling or something is not right, and you realize something is wrong. And if those, those incidents happen more than three times a week, or even just three times a week, and that goes on for a period of more than three weeks, you should go to your doctor and ask your doctor for help. And he will signpost or she will signpost the most appropriate uh, help that you can get. The rule of three, three times a week, going on for more than three weeks, that is time to seek help. But if you're thinking about it in a sort of with a sporting metaphor, that is when the referee is gonna blow the whistle, say enough is enough, we need help there. Uh, very well said. Uh, since, since you brought it up, I have to ask you about a couple of other UK related things. But, but the Super League, how, how did this get so sideways from a feeling of we have this grand announcement to 48 hours later, it's completely done? Well, it goes back to my core beliefs and values about working in corporate land as well, Greg. And I, I do as much work in corporate land as I do in, in, in sports land, that your organization I've said this already in this interview, you know, any organization is only as good as the quality of the relationships inside it. 
if you're an owner of any organization and you're not talking to the people you employ, that's not good leadership. <clears throat> so had Liverpool's owners or Manchester United's or Chelsea's or Arsenal's or whoever's gone to their employees, their managers, their players, and said, what do you think about this? And then they had the support of those people. Then you could see it working. But once you cut yourself off from your staff, the people who's who basically keep you where you are by their hard work, their dedication. Um, once you don't ask them their advice, to me, you're not an organization. That's not leadership. And to me, once the fracture between those happened um, and the players came out and said, this isn't for us, or the managers said, well, nobody's told us about this, then you have a breakdown. And that's why I think the ESL collapsed so quickly. Had the, had the owners talked to their staff, over a period of months, it would be an entirely different. Is there, assuming there's proper communication in the future, is this sort of thing an inevitable outcome? Is this where this the sport is trending as far as developing some sort of Super League, whether it's two years, five years away? I just don't know. All I know is that the, I don't think this has gone away for good because our sports clubs um, have taken a massive hit over the last <clears throat> 12 months. And I think that's where my anger with it really sits. This is an opportunistic time to try and power grab and money grab by the fact the fact, fact those clubs have lost money over the last the last year. Um, it's a time to, you know, if, if things are tough, you pull together. You don't say, ha ha, I'm cutting you asunder now. I'm going off to, to, to earn more money. So in my opinion, this is to do with what's happened in the last 12 months. And those clubs, through fear, have decided to go, go their own way. Whilst fear and money are in, inextricably linked, Greg, this will come back at another time, in another shape, in another form. Have you watched the show Ted Lasso? I love it. I love Ted Lasso. Uh, I thought it was so fitting because that, that, to me, is one of the most positive pieces of television I've seen in a while. Uh, and I think it hit on a lot of things that you kind of talked about, right? They have the players that are coming from another country trying to acclimate. There's people that are dealing with kind of their their role and identity. As you watch that, I mean, how many things are you seeing that kind of apply to your everyday work when it comes to psychotherapy? Well, Ted Lasso really is a, an amateur psychotherapist. Yeah. You know, he tries and builds relationships inside this fictitious football club in London. Uh, and you see how his essential kindness and empathy challenges some of the real cynicism involved in the game. It's exactly the same stuff that happens to me. I'm not a Ted Lasso. The difference is I do know my sport, I think, anyway. <laughs> um, whereas Ted Lasso, the comedy, comes from the, the, what we what's known as the ingenue. He, he, he doesn't know anything. He doesn't know when the crowd is shouting obscenities at him. But the point is that he is he has empathy, he has kindness, he has authenticity, he has transparency. You take that into any sports organization and watch the fireworks go. And the joke would be, of course, you could write a book about it. Wait, I have done. Yes, you have. But keeping your head in the game, Gary's book. Outside of the humor and the fun of, of the main character, Ted Lasso, how much does that show kind of Hit, hit hit an authentic note of what it's like to be a team in the UK? Pretty close. 
I mean, it's, it's exaggerated and underplayed, would you believe, at certain moments. But there are a lot of truisms there about the, 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 the cultural differences about the US and the UK. But also, there are a lot of things that are even stranger and more weird than the Ted Lasso thing. So if you think Ted Lasso is, oh, come on, that's ridiculous fiction. I've seen a lot worse. I could tell you a lot worse, but I'd be, um, I'd be in trouble because I'd be breaking confidentialities. <laughs> but the stuff I've come across, Greg, you would not believe. And that's why in my bookkeeping, Head in the Game, I've had to um, make a lot of the stories, make the stories fictional because they're based on real events. They're based on my events as a psychotherapist. Some of the stuff that's gone on is beyond comprehension and beyond belief. Yeah, you use uh, composite characters there to kind of protect some stories and identities um, uh, in in the book, keeping your head in the game. And uh, as for Ted Lasso fans, season two, I just heard at least in the U.S. coming out uh, this summer. I'm not sure if it's the same the same timeline, but looking forward to that. Uh, <clears throat> Gary, we close out every every one of these with our with our three questions that are kind of a departure from from the everyday, uh, not necessarily tied to your work, but they could be. And the first one is, what's what's something you've done just for you lately? Uh, rejoined a golf club and got out on the golf course, uh, which has just been the perfect antidote to lockdown. Just getting it out in the fresh air. It's just, uh, just a very mild spring weather here in the UK, just turning into the summer. It's just delicious. Being back, uh, playing sport, enjoying the comradeship of other golfers. So that's what I've done for myself. And what's something you've done for someone else lately? Well, that's in my work. You know, every day I'm, I'm helping people look at their personal issues. Um, so uh, I'd say that's stitched into the DNA of, of, of about my work every day. But uh, I think taking my, my, my new granddaughter a toy recently, one of her first toys was just those beautiful moments. And you think, she's going to play with it or not? And she just ripped the whole ripped not ripped literally ripped it but just got really involved with a toy and bashed it around it was absolutely wonderful to see a sort of nine nine month old little girl really enjoying something i brought so i've got a lot of pleasure out of that well, that's excellent excellent and and last but not least where where do you turn to unplug from all the work and what kind of can provide a little bit of levity for you whether it's a show movie music conversation where do you go for that yeah, I, I, I do like Netflix. Netflix has kind of kept me sane over the uh, over the last twelve months, especially in the winter months here in the UK. Uh, I, I, if I'm honest, I enjoy one glass of red wine every evening just to unwind. So that that's um, that's been a bit of a, a a good scotch occasionally, but not too excessive. I'm not a big um, I'm not a big drinker, but I, I think eating well, exercising well, and trying to get some good headspace. Remember. The most important thing is how we look after ourselves. And I'd say this to anybody watching who do, do have, if you have issues and you worry about your mental health, self-care is a huge piece of all this. So look after yourself, eat well, exercise well, and try to get some rest. The biggest thing, the biggest thing we can take from our sports stars is it's stitched into every um, schedule of our major sports clubs they even write it in big letters, recovery. So certain days are recovery days. Make sure you have recovery days as well, whatever you're doing. Well said, Gary. If anyone wants to read your book, listen to your show, what's the, what's the best way to kind of follow along with all the work you're doing? Yeah, so my book is called Keeping Your Head in the Game, and it's published by Penguin, and you can buy that on Amazon. 
and I have a, a radio show on Talk Sport, which is the biggest uh, uh, sports station here in the UK, maybe even in the world. They've got so many brands these days. Um, and that's called On the Sporting Couch. And if you go onto the platform Acast, you'll find On the Sporting Couch. And I've run on-air therapy sessions with very famous uh, sports stars here in the UK. Excellent. G Gary Bloom, great to catch up with you again. I appreciate all the good work you're doing and uh, best of luck in the future. Great to see you again. Great look after yourself.